Welcome to Grace Christian Church. It's uh, lovely to be together this morning, uh, all together, and it's amazing to have our dear sister Thelma uh, back and um, to have her back with us safe and sound. And uh, yes, please, as we prayed this morning for the uh, Muhlenberg family, please, please keep them in your prayers. Um, And I'm sure um, Thelma and Eric would be happy to answer any questions that you might have so that you can pray for them in a more specific way. This morning we are gathering around God's words, not man's words, so let us ask uh, God to help us with this passage this morning. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that these are indeed your words. And Father, we do ask by the work of your Spirit that you would hold the word high among us this morning, the word who became flesh and came to dwell among us. We ask that you would still our minds, soften our hearts and work in us, that this wouldn't be a Bible lesson, but that we would hear from you this morning. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, As we've seen over the past couple of weeks as we've been in this series, uh, Matthew wrote his gospel to show his original Jewish audience and converts to the Christian faith why the Jesus whom he followed around for a good three three years is the irrefutable, long-awaited Messiah. And we're only one chapter in and already seen a few ways that Matthew has shown us this. First, he's shown us that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah because Jesus is a descendant of David through Joseph and Mary, which is affirmed later by the Apostle Paul, who says, as to his earthly life being Christ Jesus, he is a descendant of David, Romans 1.3. And as we saw last week, Jesus is the legitimate son of David, as the angel who was sent to Joseph announced that he was to take Mary to be his wife, which we saw he did, even though she was already pregnant. However, as we saw, she was already pregnant because that which was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, which means that this Jesus is incredibly unique, as not only is he biologically and physically a man, but also very God in the flesh. In fact, it's from passages like this that pastors and theologians in the ancient church were able to formulate the various creeds and confessions that Christians hold to. For example, in the Athanasian Creed, we read, For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of his Father, begotten before the world and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God, perfect man of reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. Second, Matthew also interestingly uh, linked Jesus to Abraham and he did this because it was to Abraham of all the people in the world that God promised that his seed would be a blessing to the world. Genesis 12. 
So not only only did uh, Matthew link Jesus uh, to being of kingly heritage, but also to the full qualification of being the one that God spoke to Abraham about all those years ago who would bless the world. And finally, Matthew also showed us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, who was a child born to a virgin, was the fulfillment of an incredibly special promise given through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born. Meaning that uh, God prepared his people to receive his son who would be known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what Matthew has done in his gospel so far. He has shown us that this Jesus is the son of David, uh, the son of Abraham, and that he is the fulfillment of an awesome prophetic message given to God's people that said God would come to dwell among them. And Matthew says he has in Jesus. Now this morning we turn our attention to another prophecy that was given about the Messiah to which Jesus again fulfills. And like Matthew did last week for us in the conception narrative, he again gives context as to how the promises of God were fulfilled in the life of Jesus, the Messiah. So with that said, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. We read, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Okay, so church, there's a, there's a couple of things that we need to understand here so that we can get what Matthew is showing us. The first thing to note is that Matthew tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's significant because that was the city where King David was born as well. So so again, Matthew reinforces Jesus's connection to the throne of his father David and his connection as the rightful Messiah of Israel. Because not only was he from the kingly tribe of Judah, he was born in the very city of David. That's not all. You might also notice that Matthew has introduced some new people to the narrative here. And we need to understand who they are in order for us to grasp the significance of Jesus' entrance into this world. So the first person I want you to notice is King Herod. Now, as I said in the first sermon in this series, Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, either to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah or to encourage the converts that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. And I'm reminding you of that because uh, we got that context, among other things, uh, from a very early source in Christian history, being from a man named Papias. And he was the Apostle John's disciple. 
And it's from this incredibly early source that we uh, were able to understand that Matthew wrote to, his, uh, to, wrote to the Jews sometime during the ministry of Paul and Peter while they were still alive and ministering in Rome, which was in the early 60s. All this to say, Matthew doesn't go on uh, and explain about who King Herod was because his original Jewish audience would have known exactly who he was talking about because he was a very well-known public figure in the nation. In fact, we have other sources outside of the Bible that talk about King Herod. Uh, There's a Jewish historian who lived around the time of the destruction of the Second Temple in the 70s, a man named Josephus, and he wrote a biography on King Herod, and it's in the biography that we learn that Herod was the son of Antipater, who was an Edomite. Um, And we would see that this man, Antipater, uh, would have been what we would deem to be the head of the police force in Jerusalem, who kept law and order for the Roman conquerors. So, as you can imagine, this family wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have been very popular with the locals. And we see in the writing of Josephus that Herod took over from his father at some point. But not only that, but he was put in a position as a bit of a, a puppet ruler and named king by the Romans in about 37 BC. But that's not all. Uh, Josephus also notes that Herod was known to be jealous and paranoid, even having his own wife and two of his sons murdered because he was worried that they were positioning themselves uh, to take his position. In fact, it was rumoured to have been said by Emperor Augustus that it was safer to be Herod So, which is a female pig, than his very own son. The second character isn't an individual, but a group that Matthew introduces us to, uh, whom he calls the Magi, which has been traditionally rendered as wise men. And again, we, we don't have a huge explanation about who they were. But what is interesting to note is that he mentions quite clearly in our text that they came from the east. And I hate to break this uh, to you folks, if you're a massive fan of the Christmas plays, but there is uh, no evidence here that the Magi were in fact kings, uh, three kings from Orientar. No, they were were more likely prominent religious scholars who travelled from either Persia or Babylon who studied religious texts and discerned astrological phenomena and reported information to kingly courts so they could make diplomatic decisions based on zodiac observations. But what's really interesting is that doesn't seem to be why they came to Jerusalem, right? No, we we see it in our text this morning. Uh, They didn't come to Jerusalem to give diplomatic counsel, but as we see here, they came to worship the king of the Jews. Now, for whatever reason, we're not completely sure, uh, but they had access to the Jewish scriptures, which prophesied that there would come a day where there shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, Numbers 24, verse 17. 
This is just one of many prophecies about Israel's coming Messiah. Thus, when they were studying these texts and observing the night sky, they must have put two and two together and were driven to the conclusion that Israel's God was announcing to the world that his king had come, and they went to meet him. So you can imagine the scene, right? You have this paranoid king, a man who knew he wasn't from the the rightful lineage of the kings, who had aligned himself with Israel's enemy, Rome, and a man who was willing to destroy his own flesh and blood to keep that position. Then these highly influential scholars came to town saying, where's the king of Israel? Because we've seen the heavens declare that he has been born and we've come to worship him. You can almost hear uh, the prophet Isaiah's words ringing in the background here, uh, that a light has dawned and people from the nations, the Gentiles, were literally being drawn to it. Church, we're doing a lot of context and background here because we're meant to start to feel the tension building here in Matthew's narrative. His original readers would have felt this as well. Word got around and and people started talking and it got to the upper uh, political courts that the Magi were asking questions about the long-awaited Messiah. So it's little wonder what we read here in verse 3. Matthew says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Um, Now this, this word disturbed is a translation of a word which means to have inner turmoil. But but notice what else Matthew notes here in verse 3. King Herod isn't just having this inner turmoil. But as Matthew goes on to say, all Jerusalem was as well. We need to see that in our text. All Jerusalem and Herod was disturbed. It's interesting. Matthew reports that you have these pagan stargazers, which is an awesome name for a metal band, uh, come to Jerusalem asking where Israel's king was because they wanted to worship him. And and when word got around as to why they were there, you don't have all these people celebrating with them. Just the opposite. They're wrestling with inner turmoil. And I say this is interesting because... Let's step back for a moment and remember the context here. Matthew has written this gospel with a Jewish audience in mind and he's saying here that the first people who came to worship Jesus were in fact Gentiles. They're the ones who came to worship the Jewish Messiah, not the Jews, which is Matthew's way of showing from the very start of the gospel that God sent his son into this world to draw the nations to himself, not just the Jews. Because, hey, they didn't even discern the signs which were told to them by their very own prophets. No, it was this pagan stargazing club from hundreds, if not thousands of miles away, that had to bring their attention to it. And when they did, all Jerusalem were pretty much terrified probably wondering what their paranoid tyrant leader would do about it. Let's read on. 
verses 4 and 5. When he, being Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, with the background and the context that we've just looked at, it's, it's not like Herod had called all the theologians of the city uh, together because they were getting all excited uh, that God was finally fulfilling what he had always promised to do for their nation. Now, this was a fact-finding mission because Herod was paranoid that there was someone else in this world that could challenge his power and take his political influence away. And as you will see next week, uh, Tom Richards is coming to preach uh, for us, and he's going to take us through the rest of chapter 2, and you're going to see how that's played out. Um, But there's something else that I want you to notice here. I want you to notice this. This is the first time that we're introduced to Jesus' ongoing opposition And that's to the religious leaders of the day. And we're going to get to know them really well as we make our way through this book. And I want you to notice how incredible it is how Matthew introduces us to them. Because for all intents and purposes, as we'll see, they advise Herod as to where the Messiah will be born. Not so they can get on their donkeys and get on out to meet him. No, they use scripture which they knew were the very words of God to advise a paranoid tyrant puppet king who murdered anyone who was a threat to him where to find the Messiah. And then we read they do nothing about it. That is worth noting as we start to make our way through this book. All this to say, Matthew has given us a really interesting insight into the religious culture of the day. You have a nation who is miss the signs, you have a tyrant king who's not even meant to be there, who thought of himself as the king of the Jews, willing to do anything to keep that position, and you have religious leaders who we see here are somewhat compromised. It's a pretty dire situation Matthew's painting for us. So Israel's religious leaders are summoned to Herod and they point out Micah 5 to him in regards to his question. And they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet's written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, uh, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, uh, Sam wonderfully read those texts out for us this morning. Um, And if you were listening uh, keenly, you may have noticed that there were a few differences uh, in the words that Micah use, uh, used and the way that Matthew quotes it here in verse 6 of our text this morning. And without getting too technical uh, this morning, because it, it is quite technical, but we are a church that believes in uh, God's word, so we don't ever want to skip over passages that can seem too hard. We, we do want to look at them. I do want to briefly explain what Matthew has done because this is in no way a misquote. This is a way of handling the Jewish scriptures which was completely acceptable to the Jewish people, his audience. Let me say that another way. Uh, What Matthew is doing here is all very intentional. And remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish 
audience. So it's not like they didn't know what this very famous passage said. Now, as we'll see, Matthew was just emphasising certain points to bring out the prophetic fulfilment which actually happened in the historical life of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. So that's Micah 5 verse 2. Now compare that to Matthew 2 verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, so let's go back a bit here. I don't want this to become a full-on Bible lesson, but we do need to see what's happening here because it's, it's very important. Micah 5.2 starts with, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, whereas Matthew says, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Now, first things first, Ephrathah was an archaic term used for Bethlehem. Um, so by including the land of Judah, Matthew is in no way changing the location. He's emphasising the messianic connection to the tribe of Judah. This is something he's been doing ever since the beginning of his book. But that's not all. Um, He goes on to say, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Whereas Micah says, Though you are small among the clans of Judah. Again, not a problem. Matthew is just emphasising that Bethlehem is a small city with a small population. But in saying that, in no way insignificant, but extremely important because Israel's ruler will come from there. This is the last thing I want you to notice this morning. Matthew says, For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Whereas Micah says, Out of you will come one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, now, as we've made our way through that this morning, it's that last phrase that's, Interesting. A, a ruler will shepherd my people, Israel. It's, it's totally different. Why? Because Matthew is actually connecting Micah's prophecy to a promise that was given to David. A promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel 5 verse 2. And this promise to David stated that David would shepherd the people of God. And Matthew was showing us that this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, in the tribe of Judah, in the line of David, well, he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the good shepherd. He is the perfect shepherd. He is the shepherd that will lead God's people back to Yahweh and be the one to reign as king over God's people. There's a lot more that could be said about that this morning. A lot more can be said about the way that Matthew is showing us this incredible truth. But what I do want to say is Matthew is incredibly intentional here. Like we've seen all throughout his book so far, he's making everything about Jesus. We looked at the genealogy. It was about Jesus. 
the marriage of Joseph and Mary, it was about Jesus. Everything, even prophetic utterances all throughout the Jewish scriptures, it's all about Jesus. He's showing us that it's all pointing to this Jesus. And Matthew, the great Jewish theologian evangelist, is, he's putting it all together for us. And he's showing us it's all pointing to one person, Jesus the Messiah. Let's keep moving. Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go worship him. Another thing that's interesting to note here, church, all Jerusalem we know knew about why the Magi were there. We know that the religious leaders knew about it. But Herod calls these scholars to himself secretly, under cloak and dagger, in the dark. Now, with what we've seen so far, we know that Herod had no intention of worshipping anyone else as king. But at this point, the Magi don't seem clued in on that. They don't catch on and they obey his command as after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, says verses 9 and 10. We read on, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. I mean, this is, this is incredible what Matthew is showing us here. You have this scene, these, these prominent men from the east whose work is advising kings and councils who are learned scholars and most likely brilliant mathematicians and religious experts. Yet we see these men from Gentile nations bowing down, falling down before this little boy. That's what Matthew says here. That's the picture we're meant to see. The Gentiles falling to the ground and worshipping this little king. We read on, verse 11, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Now it's customary in the ancient Near East that when you saw someone who was superior to yourself, you were to bow to them but also present gifts to them and that was customary in coming into the presence of of a king that would have been all known to the original readers. And there's some discussion about the different uh, gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh and what they symbolised. Uh, but for time's sake, I, I don't want to enter into that discussion here. But what I do want to point out and what is clearly seen and there is no doubt in this, Matthew wants to show us that worship and offering from the Gentiles to this Jewish king took place. That's what we are meant to take away from this. That God, the God of Israel, gave a sign to his creation in his heavens to which the Gentiles took notice and they came from the ends of the earth to worship and give gifts to the Jewish Messiah. And Matthew concludes this scene by 
stating in verse 12, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And might I say, based on um, verse 16 in in chapter 2, which you're going to look at a bit more next week, we see that Herod, when uh, the, the Magi left without coming back to ever report to him, he decided to have the children two years and under killed in Bethlehem, based on the time that he had learnt from the wise men when they'd first seen his star. So by taking that into account, uh, theologians estimate that Jesus would have been around two years old uh, when all of this took place, give or take a few months, meaning that he was no longer a baby, but a toddler living in a home with his mum. So the scene that we are all so familiar with, with the shepherds and the wise men and the little drummer boy, well, I'm sorry to break it to you folks, these scholars from the East came much, much later to the party, months, not if many months after the birth of Jesus. And if you're looking for an application of that, when you set up your nativity this Christmas, uh, just make sure you put the uh, Magi there maybe in April Brothers and sisters, the point of this whole passage and the point that I pray will grip your heart this morning, that this this isn't just a feel-good story that we look at at Christmas time. Though it is so cute to see our little ones dressed up, all the details of what Matthew is showing us here is that all creation is yearning for salvation. That is the point and the connection that I want you to make this morning. There is a shining star in the sky in this passage because God wields the universe in his very hands to make his son known to the world. That's right. The the one who is creator, who is sovereign, over all that there is, use that authority to make an announcement to the world about the birth of his son. And creation needs to pay attention. Now, as we see, there were people who were blind to that. But not everyone was. There were others, others from the nations, who were drawn to the king of the Jews, to the Messiah. And they were drawn Because God had made a promise to bless the nations through Abraham's seed. That's what Matthew is setting up for us here. That's what Matthew is is holding high in the midst of this passage. God is bringing about the salvation of his people by bringing his only begotten son into this world. He has set the Messiah and the invitation is clear. Come and worship the king. And that invitation is still being held out today. If you were here this morning and you were not a Christian, if you have not called upon the name of the Lord, then I would invite you this morning to see, like these wise men saw, that God has indeed sent his son into this world. Why did he send them? Well, there's another evangelist called John, and he makes the reason for this 
very clear out of the words of Jesus himself. And Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is why God sent his one and only Son, because he so loves the world. And it was this love that caused Jesus to live a perfect life on behalf of his people, to be crucified on behalf of his people and to be raised in victory on behalf of his people. And the scriptures tell us that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I would plead with you. I would plead with you to turn and come to Jesus this morning and to call upon his name while there is still time. You might be here this morning and saying, you don't know what I've done, but the very words of Jesus is that he will forgive all unrighteousness and he in no way will cast out anyone who comes to him. No one knows what time or hour our hearts will stop beating. And this is eternal business. Don't walk out of this place having rejected God's free and gracious gift that is being held out to you this morning. And church, I want to say this to you. Tyrants have always tried to cast God off, to to reject his ways and, and snuff out God's people, but they will never be able to. Why? Because God is totally in control, which means that we as his church must not fear what the world throws at us. But in saying that, we do have to understand that the world will throw things at us. We see this all throughout church history. We have brothers and sisters all throughout church history and all throughout the world at this very moment who have been driven out of families out of their homes, out of their countries, and others have been killed for their faith in the risen Jesus. So we must not be surprised when tyrants plot and plan to come after the church. We must not be surprised when we are rejected by our families, when we lose our jobs, when we are told to sit down and shut up because our nation has inner turmoil with the message that we have to bring to them, that the king of kings rules and they have to turn to him. We mustn't be surprised as the people of God. But I also want to say this morning, we know that that little baby who was visited by those people all those years ago, who was worshipped, well, we know he grew up. We know he grew up to conquer death, to destroy the devil, his power. He grew up to ascend into heaven, to sit at the right hand of God in power and majesty. And church, he is in total control at this very moment, no matter what it looks like right now. He is the king of kings. 
He is the Lord of Lords and no tyrant, dictator or rebellion has ever or ever will be able to destroy him or his people. All this to say, what we have around us isn't a war that can be lost, but a battle that is fought daily. Not with the things of this world, but with the very spirit of God in his people with the gospel being shared with others, with uh, spiritual armour given to us by God, with prayer, with faith, and above all, with love. Would you please pray with me? Father, we are indeed aware of the things happening in our world. And Father, as we look on our devices, um, probably more than we should, and uh, the world preaches bad news, we are so thankful for good news. Father, we are thankful for the news that you have given us, and like uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke and the other evangelists and the people that you have raised up all through the years in your church It is news to be told to others. And we pray, Father, in the midst of whatever is going on in this world, that we don't believe the bad news, but know the good news. You have the victory. You have the glory. You have the power. And I pray for your church that we would be strengthened, that you would make us bold, that you would make us a people that love you and love those around us enough to tell them this news. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, uh, we're now going to stand and sing in response to uh, the words that we've heard this morning. Uh, So if you are able, would you please stand as...